Welcome to Hallrender's Practical Solutions in Healthcare podcast, featuring thoughtful analysis and insightful commentary on the legal issues facing the healthcare industry. This episode features the audio from our recent webinar, Navigating the Use of Telemedicine During the COVID-19 State of Emergency. Please make sure to check out hallrender.com coronavirus for more information regarding this and other healthcare-related topics. Hello, everyone. Uh, Good afternoon to our attendees on the uh, East Coast. Uh, good morning to our attendees on the West Coast. Uh, thank you for participating in our webinar, Navigating the Use of Telemedicine During the COVID-19 State of Emergency. Uh, again, my name is Chris Eads. Uh, I'm one of the members of our telemedicine team here at Hall Render. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues who are also part of our, our telemedicine team, Reagan Tankersley and Michael Batt. Uh, we only have an hour to work with here, and so we're going to spare you the traditional reading of the biographies. Uh, if you're interested, uh, if you'd like to contact any of us following the webinar, uh, our contact information is both in the slides and, and can also be found at hallrender.com. Uh, we other, have other teammates as part of our telemedicine team. Uh, their information is also on uh, our website, hallrender.com. To put our presentation in context, though, I'll mention quickly, uh, my virtual care practice is focused more on the professional practice elements of telemedicine. So things like licensure, consent, prescriptive authority, workflow, et cetera. Uh, Reagan is, is more focused on the reimbursement elements, uh, and Mike is more focused on the technology and, and privacy side. Uh, and so we've, we've organized, organized our presentation accordingly. Prior to jumping into the contact, content, uh, rather, we do want to take the opportunity to extend a quick thank you to those healthcare providers on the line, as well as, well as the administrators and other individuals uh, uh, working on the front line during the healthcare crisis we're facing. Uh, we do sincerely appreciate what you're doing. It's our hope that uh, our webinar today may shed some additional light on uh, some of the telemedicine alternatives that, that are available to you during this period uh, and perhaps after as well. Uh, we have uh, received an incredible number of, of calls over the past few weeks on these topics, which is, of course, why we, we decided a webinar uh, might be important, uh, and really across the spectrum. Um, those providers that have never used telemedicine and are needing to ramp up quickly, uh, those providers that are doing a lot of telemedicine uh, but, but desire to use it in different ways now. Um, Irrespective of where you are on that spectrum, um, it's, 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 it's a challenge. It's been difficult to keep pace with all of the changes. Uh, even three weeks ago, before this particular healthcare crisis, the regulatory framework was, was very difficult to navigate, uh, mainly due to the variability among the states and really lack of direction at the federal level. Um, and now, of course, we're seeing near daily waivers and exceptions that are coming into play at both the federal level and state level. Uh, and so it's, it's been difficult to keep, keep pace. Uh, in fact, um, frankly, just after we had completed our slides last evening, as you may have seen this morning, CMS issued an interim final rule, well over 200 pages, um, which makes significant and wide sweeping changes to uh, CMS's telehealth uh, program. Uh, so we spent the better part of last night evaluating those changes. Uh, they are quite significant. Uh, they include a dramatic expansion of eligible telehealth services, among other significant changes. And so we've gone back to supplement this slide deck with, with those particular highlights, uh, and we will work that in uh, as well. So 
in this context, um, here's, here, here's, here's our goal really today uh, in terms of agenda. Uh, we're going to work through some of just quickly the telemedicine essentials, things you really need to understand, concepts you need to understand to understand the rest. Uh, we'll highlight the basic rules of the game for telemedicine at the federal and state level, uh, and we'll talk through uh, the significant changes we've seen over the past few weeks. Um, with this overview of, of the laws and regs, we'll then kind of focus on some particular items, uh, professional practice considerations, some reimbursement considerations, uh, and technology and privacy considerations. We'll then kind of bring it full circle um, and, and talk very quickly and sum up with what we think would be a good game plan in terms of strategizing uh, where you go uh, at this point in time with telemedicine. So uh, with that, I'm going to dive uh, right into essential terminology. Uh, originating site, um, need to understand we're talking about where the patient is physically located when receiving telemedicine services. Distance site uh, is where the telemedicine provider is located when providing those services. Telehealth and telemedicine. You'll note I have not provided a definition for these terms, and, and quite frankly, I've not done so because there's not one definition. Uh, there are a lot of different definitions in terms of how those terms are used in those definitions. Uh, payers use those terms differently. States, licensing boards all use those terms uh, differently. That's takeaway number one is that variability, but those terminolo that terminology is important um, because the way it is typically used tells us what constitutes either for reimbursement or from a professional practice standpoint what constitutes telehealth or telemedicine. Um, that's where it's going to tell us, do we need to do this by way of a synchronous audio video, video connection? Uh, can it be phone only? Uh, can we use asynchronous store and forward? Um, meaning can we send images or information uh, not in real time to a provider? And then of course, remote patient monitoring. So. These are the basic terms, but you are going to see wide variability in terms of how those, those terms are used. We'll, we'll even get to some of the significant changes that involve Medicare's view of a qualifying originating site. Also very, very important, and this is creating a lot of confusion with all of these changes, um, but I believe it's important to think very basically about telemedicine in terms of two big buckets, a professional practice bucket, and a reimbursement bucket. Within each of these buckets, there are state laws that, that, that bear on professional practice and federal laws. Same with reimbursement, state law and federal law. And you have to pay attention to what bucket you are dealing with when you're trying to figure one of these telemedicine concepts out. Let me give you a quick, quick example. Uh, I've fielded a number of calls over the last two weeks, providers that have seen that Medicare has made a licensure exception. And what these providers want to know is, does that mean I can go into another state and practice? And the answer to that is no, not necessarily. Medicare has created a licensure exception that allows you, for purposes of Medicare reimbursement, to potentially be in another state, provide an eligible service, and be reimbursed. But that reimbursement exception that Medicare has stated does not negate the state-specific professional conduct rules requiring licensure. And, and unless those have also been waived by the state, 
um, you still need to tackle that issue before you can provide services. So that's an important example in terms of where you've got to pay attention. Is this a CMS Medicare change or is this a professional practice change? So you think about it in terms of these, these questions. Um, ultimately, with professional practice, can we provide this service through telemedicine uh, now? Can we do it maybe through a telephone call? Who can provide this service through telemedicine? Doctors, APRNs, PAs? What about genetic counselors, uh, physical therapists, et cetera? What requirements do we need to meet to provide these services? And what technology can we use and how? That's the professional practice side. On the reimbursement side, it's pretty simple. If we can do these services, if we can provide these services, can we get paid for them and by whom? Because the rules for Medicare and the rules for Medicaid and the rules for commercial payers are all different in this regard. I do want to note, you know, with, with, with all this variability, there is one universal truth, and that is if you're going to provide healthcare services through telemedicine or telehealth technology, you've got to comply with the same standard of care as, as you would need to meet if you were doing the visit in person. And so that needs to always be in the backdrop here in terms of is this something that, that, that we can do. Essential rules and regs. Uh, whether it's COVID-19 related or not, these are fundamental federal laws and regs and state laws and regs you need to pay attention to. The Medicare rules obviously relate to the reimbursement bucket. DEA rules on prescriptive authority, uh, controlled substances through telemedicine relate to professional practice. There, there are a host of other agency rules out there as well that potentially relate to professional practice. And then the state laws, as I've said, are very highly variable. Um, the Medicaid rules are different one state to the next in terms of what qualifies for reimbursement through, through telemedicine. Parity provisions. Most states at this point, pre-COVID-19, have a requirement that commercial payers must reimburse for uh, services where they provide it through telemedicine if they provide reimbursement for an in-person visit. There can be qualifications. Those can vary state to state, and not all states have them. But they are, they are there, and, and they are helpful irrespective of, of, of the current healthcare crisis. Um, professional practice boards, medical licensing boards, psychology boards, each of those boards state to state uh, routinely have their own guidance. And then there are scope of practice considerations in terms of supervision and such that you always need to pay attention to. We'll work through this um, quickly um, to give you a sense of, of what we have and what's changed. Uh, there has been massive change in very little time. Um, really, in the last two and a half weeks, I'd say everything has changed. Uh, uh, at the federal level, we've seen CMS waivers, multiple rounds of waivers, statements regarding non-discretionary or discretionary non-exercise, uh, such as relates to, to HIPAA, uh, related FAQs from various agencies, um, we've seen legislation, including the CARES Act, uh, the end of last week. And then last night, as I mentioned, the CMS interim final rule just issued. Um, we have DEA exceptions and, and, and other uh, agency waivers, which we'll highlight. Um, I do want to point out just quickly with the CARES Act, and obviously there's a whole lot more there, but uh, one of the significant pieces was to authorize uh, HHS and CMS to make more aggressive uh, and affirmative changes to the telehealth program. Um, and so, you know, that just happened the end of last week. And so we were curious as to when those changes would be made. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, the, the first big round of that was last night, um, CMS interim final rule. 
Um, as this relates to Medicare, Reagan's going to get into some of the, the more of the specifics. I wanted to highlight some of the, the major changes quickly. Uh, this rule vastly expands the list of services that may be uh, provided and reimbursed through telehealth technology. Um, even with some of these geographic changes that we'll talk about, the list of what could be an approved telehealth service was still pretty, pretty small, relatively speaking. That's been drastically expanded um, to capture things like ED visits, initial nursing facility and discharge visits, uh, and other things that, that, that Reagan will expand upon. Um, also, changes in reimbursement to reflect non-facility place of service. Um, a recognition that because providers, at least during this period, are going to be using telemedicine um, more frequently, um, there's going to be more of an opportunity to bill for that encounter as you would uh, an in-person uh, encounter. There is expansion of the potential use of audio-only visits. Uh, again, Reagan will, will, I think, dive deeper on that, on that piece, and we will expect to see more guidance around it. Um, but it's really Medicare saying um, we will adopt and utilize those codes that we've not previously recognized that would allow for audio-only uh, encounters between a practitioner uh, and a patient. Um, expands the practitioners who can perform uh, e-visits uh, and uh, virtual check-ins. Uh, made some clarifications and some expansion with respect to remote patient uh, monitoring and importantly expanded some opportunities for physicians to supervise their clinical staff um, by way of using telehealth. If you have a quarantined physician, there's now uh, in certain settings an opportunity uh, to be quarantined and yet still supervise uh, those non-physician providers uh, through, through a telemedicine technology. Uh, there is a link here to the final rule, uh, uh, the interim rule that was issued last night. All right. Uh, Medicare, before COVID-19, um, as I said, had to be a designated telehealth service, um, had to utilize across the board a synchronous audiovisual technology um, or a designated store and forward technology. The patient had to be at a qualifying originating site, which was very narrowly drawn. Uh, geographic requirement had to be in a, a designated rural area and a location requirement had to be um, at a physician office or at a hospital or critical access hospital and at a few other locations. All of this has been changed um, in some ways very dramatically. So qualifying originating site, much broader now, um, um, almost as broad as it could be in the way of there's no longer during this period of emergency a geographic restriction. Um, you don't have to be in a rural area. You can be in an urban area. You can be really anywhere in the United States. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and meet this requirement. The site restriction um, has, has been done away with now as well uh, so that patients can receive services in their homes or in other locations that were not on the more limited list of eligible sites. I mentioned professional licensure. Um, it's been waived for purposes of uh, Medicare um, uh, reimbursement uh, as long as you are licensed and in good standing uh, in another state. Um, Pre-existing patient relationship. You may have seen when the first round of changes came out, um, the first round of waivers, there was a requirement, yes, you can use telemedicine, but um, you have to have a pre-existing relationship with the patient, which was spelled out and de defined. That's been done away with. Um, so you can now use telehealth in this context for new patients 
as well as existing patients. Also importantly, as of last night in the interim final rule, the existing patient relationship has been done away with for e-visits and virtual check-ins. Um, so that had not changed until last night. You can now use e-visits and virtual check-ins with respect to uh, new, new patients. All right, uh, I'm gonna move on to DEA. Um, I've included a slide on the Ryan Height uh, Act. This was kind of where we started with uh, prescription analyses in the context of telemedicine pre-COVID-19. Um, and that's because this federal uh, law requires an in-person visit before there's a prescription of a controlled substance through telemedicine. <clears throat> it provides for a few narrow exceptions, but they were just that, very narrow. Uh, didn't really come into play all that often. Now, uh, the DEA has invoked um, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, its emergency authority to permit temporary waiver of that in-person exam uh, for prescribing controlled substances to new patients through telemedicine as long as the prescription is issued for a legitimate medical purpose uh, by a practitioner acting in the usual scope of the profession, scope of practice, um, and it's gotta be an audio-visual real-time communication. Um, this is important. This goes back to that concept of the two buckets. Uh, you'll see there's more opportunity to provide telephone-only consults, perhaps for purposes of Medicare reimbursement. That does not supersede this DEA requirement at this time that if you're going to provide, pr uh, prescribe a controlled substance, you have to have an audiovisual uh, interactive communication in play. Uh, you also have to comply with the pertinent federal and state law, which I'll come back to. HIPAA, Mike will speak more about this. Uh, there has been uh, a statement uh, the, uh, that uh, there will be non-discretionary exercise. Um, OCR will not penalize for HIPAA violations uh, in relation to using non-HIPAA compliant technology to, 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 to accomplish telemedicine or, or telehealth as long as it's non-public facing, right? So this means you can use FaceTime. Uh, at this point in time. Uh, now, there are some considerations that Mike will get into, um, but this is also an opportunity to more easily and quickly get ramped up with a telemedicine encounter um, using technology that may otherwise uh, uh, already be available. All right, so those are all kind of federal law uh, and federal level items. Uh, I want to mention state law and regulation. Um, I mentioned the variability that was in place before any of this started. That's still there. Um, we're seeing, of course, a lot of action at the state level in the way of uh, emergency orders, uh, Medicaid waivers and exceptions, um, professional licensing boards making an exception. Um, there is a, just as there's a lot of activity at, at the federal level, there's just as much activity at the state level. The challenge continues to be though, those efforts are variable. Uh, I'll speak to licensure in a minute. Um, you know, we see some themes, but there is still variation in these changes in a way where ideally if you're going to manage risk, decide how you need to do telemedicine in a way that's compliant, you still need to understand what the rules of the game are in the states where you will be offering those services. Um, so some of the themes are licensure exceptions. Um, we're seeing a lot of states more generally uh, allow for the use of telemedicine technology in the lieu of in-person uh, requirements that may otherwise be found in the state regs. 
Uh, we're seeing uh, increased use of telephone calls in lieu of, of, of audiovisual. And, and, and we're also seeing a lot of professional boards uh, make specific exceptions for their practitioners in, in, in their states. So let me talk quickly about professional licensure. Um, as I mentioned, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions about this. Um, first, the confusion regarding Medicare and Medicaid um, exceptions, which I've already mentioned. Um, other things that you need to be mindful of. Um, it's in, in nearly all, well, first of all, not all states have enacted a licensure exception. Uh, most at this point have, but not all. Secondly, it's, it's typically, in, in, in nearly all of those, those jurisdictions, it's not as easy as just going into that jurisdiction and practicing. There's typically a requirement that you submit an emergency application or attestation. Next, uh, you have to pay attention to whether the licensure exception is specific only to physicians or all licensed healthcare providers. In some states, uh, the emergency orders uh, that have been entered speak specifically to physicians. You may find that other licensing boards have waived, um, but you really need to pay attention to that and not just assume um, that PAs or APRNs or other providers um, can enjoy the same licensure exception. Um, some states are requiring, uh, are qualifying what you can do in taking advantage of the licensure exception, perhaps a requirement that you have to have a pre-existing relationship with the patient that's in that state. Uh, or your activity must specifically be related uh, to COVID-19 activities. So long and short of it is you do need to pay attention to um, what those states have to say uh, because it's, it's just not as, as simple as they've, they've kind of opened up the border and, and said come in and, and, and practice medicine or your specialty. Informed consent. Um, uh, also a challenge right now, A, because how do we do it, and, and B, we may not be able to get something in writing, uh, so lots of questions here as well. Um, this, this falls typically into both buckets. Uh, the reimbursement rules will have requirements for obtaining consent, and the professional practice standards will as well. There are, there's a lot of variability state to state, but I would say this is generally true. In most jurisdictions and with most payers, Verbal consent from the patient, patient during the, 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 the uh, encounter is going to be sufficient as long as the pra telemedicine practitioner documents on his or her end. Um, that's not universal, but I can, I can tell you that's in, in nearly all settings uh, at this point. You still, though, need to consider that dialogue, um, both for purposes of risk management um, and, and for a more uh, meaningful and well-organized telemedicine encounter. Um, you need to identify the patient. Uh, is this an adult? Is this a minor? If it's a minor, you need an authorized representative participating in that visit. So we need to think through that. <clears throat> Two, uh, you need to discuss the risk benefits and limitations of virtual care. Um, that's gonna depend upon the service you are providing, right? Uh, it may not need to be a whole big discussion, but maybe it is because again, we've gotta meet the same standard of care. Typically, we wanna remind patients that this is not intended to be an emergency visit encounter. If you're having an emergency or something happens to our connection and you, you have an emergency, you need to dial 911, come to the ED, or pursue uh, a different option. Uh, we want to clarify what the follow-up responsibilities are. Are we supposed to call you? Are you supposed to call us? That should be part of uh, the scheduling process and or this, this dialogue. 
and we need a backup plan. What if the feed goes out? What if we have an issue with technology? Um, this may be a very sensitive encounter. Um, let's map out ahead of time how we're going to deal with that if, if uh, the video drops or we have some, some other issue. Also pay attention to, again, state-specific requirements may require more as part of that dialogue. Behavioral health is a great example. Um, a lot of states require, when it's a behavioral health encounter, that you provide specific information to the patient. For example, um, um, the access to, to um, uh, facilities or assistance that are geographically proximate to the patient, right? If they need urgent care, where can they go that's close to them um, if, if they need? So you do need to pay attention to, to those issues as well. Um, talking points. Um, you don't just want to, you know, during these times, you do have to just ramp up quickly uh, on occasion, but ideally, we need to discuss this workflow and our talking points depending upon the service we're providing so that we map this out. If we can't get an informed consent document signed by the patient, and we need, to, we need to decide if we can or not, but if we can't, it's going to be really important that we do address these items as part of our dialogue um, and that practitioners understand they need to do so and why. So developing a script or some talking points around this can be very, very helpful. Lastly, I'm going to wrap with prescriptions. I've already mentioned the DEA exception. I've already mentioned how that may differ from some of the payer requirements. Also pay attention to state law. Uh, most states have prescription requirements through telemedicine that are more restrictive than the exception made by the DEA. Um, there are frequently prohibitions on prescribing opioids through telemedicine which creates a challenge right now uh, in, in situations like chronic pain management. Um, there may be specific medical record treatment plan requirements, um, but pay attention to those state rules because the DEA is exception is contingent upon compliance with those state rules. And as I mentioned, they are quite frequently more restrictive in terms of what you can prescribe in the way of a controlled substance in particular through telemedicine. All right. I'm going to pass the baton now to Regan, who will uh, uh, focus on some reim uh, reimbursement. Thank you, Chris. Uh, this next portion of the presentation will focus on reimbursement considerations, focusing primarily on Medicare reimbursement because that has been the, uh, the biggest change and impact that we have seen um, under the current uh, public, public health emergency. So I see the timeline of events for purposes of Medicare coverage of telehealth services in three buckets. We have the world as it existed prior to the public health emergency, prior to the 1135 waivers. As Chris had already discussed, Medicare coverage of telehealth services in the, the pre-public health emergency world was, was very limited. There was the geographic restriction for the location of the patient. The patient had to be in a qualified originating site. The only way that a practitioner as a distance site practitioner could be could bill and be paid for those services as telehealth services under the under the Medicare policy was if that patient was located in a qualified originating site. Again, it had a geographic restriction. Distance site was the location of the practitioner, generally not restricted, um, but for federally qualified health centers and rural health centers were not viewed as appropriate locations for a distance site practitioner. There is a defined set of telehealth services within the Social Security Act um, that existed in the statute. And, and this, in my um, description here, I will pivot from something Chris had said about there isn't a good definition between telehealth and te telemedicine. 
for Medicare payment purposes, telehealth is defined within the Social Security Act, within that defined uh, statutory provision, meaning only those services as identified within the Act or as updated by the Secretary of HHS on an annual basis can be covered and paid for under Medicare as a, a telehealth service, which we will distinguish from other types of virtual communication services. But um, for purposes of, of our discussion here, recognizing that there is a, a, dis a distinction for Medicare payment for telehealth versus other types of communication services. Um, for telehealth services to be provided under that strict statutory uh, provision, it generally required a HIPAA-compliant two-way audiovisual communication. So that was also somewhat, somewhat limited as to the types of platforms that could be available to, for use by, uh, by the beneficiary on the originating site and by the physician or other practitioner on the distant site. So the next bucket in the timetable related to Medicare coverage for telehealth services would be our coverage post the 1135 waivers once, once the emergency period began. And I would say this bucket up until 530 yesterday was a continuing bucket, but we'll get to that in the next set of the timeline is that the world, you know, all of a sudden changed yesterday with the release of the interim final rule. But initially when we were first seeing the, the coverage expansion under the waivers, what it did initially was remove the geographic restrictions, which was, which was big for Medicare payment purposes because they always had that geographic restriction. That meant a patient could be located uh, anywhere within the United States, including in the patient's home. The patient's home was then added to the statutory provision as a qualified originating site, even though there was not going to be a recognized um, site, originating site facility fee for that location. It was still a, a very broad expansion to allow these patients to receive services in their home. It then um, included the FQHCs and the RHCs. Those became added um, as an approved location for a distance site practitioner. Therefore, if a beneficiary's primary care physician was actually a practitioner at an RHC or an FQ, they would not be limited by that provision. Those physicians could still, or practitioners, could still be that distance site practitioner for purposes of a, of a telehealth visit. Again, um, as the first waves of waivers were going through, and we are seeing changes within the emergency legislation that, that authorized waiver authority, um, it also, the guidance, um, removed that requirement that a patient would have had to have been, uh, had to have been seen within the last three years or, or be an established patient. CMS and HHS had originally said they were not going to enforce or audit that provision. It was subsequently changed within um, the waiver guidance to, to remove that restriction. That is where the world um, existed um, under, under the waivers. Um, as we move forward, and again, this is prior to the interim final rule issued yesterday, we saw, saw continue to see some more increased flexibility for purposes of Medicare coverage of telehealth, increased flexibility for home dialysis patients, increased flexibility for hospice recertification. Those required face-to-face -face, um, periodic evaluations or recertifications, those were going to allow to be, to be completed through telehealth. And again, initially, all of this was limited to the very fine, defined set of telehealth services. Medicare has those described in the statute. They publish a list every year. It's on the CMS website of those identified approved telehealth codes that can be billed and provided as a telehealth service. Um, there's enforcement discretion during this emergency period, as Chris had mentioned, regarding OCR was not going to enforce um, HIPAA requirements for technology use in good faith. That allowed Medicare beneficiaries to be able to access their, their practitioners via smartphones, via two-way um, videos such as FaceTime or Skype, anything that was not public-facing. And there had been some guidance from the OAG that they were not going to pursue enforcement action for provider uh, waiver of cost sharing related to these telehealth 
and now eventually um, other types of virtual communication services. So that is where we were. And then Friday of last week on uh, when the CARES Act was signed, um, that gave us some additional expansion because we had the original waivers, what Medicare was allowing under the waivers that existed versus the waiver authority. Under the original waivers, again, we only had coverage for those defined set of telehealth services within that identified section of the Social Security Act. All definitions within the Social Security Act still applied. It still required real-time, real two-way audiovisual communication. So when you look at those first set of waivers, the waiver authority granted initially was somewhat limited. It basically removed that geographic restriction. It allowed the originating site to be a patient's home, but it did not provide for any kind of a, a payment for an originating site facility fee when the patient was located in the patient's home. What did the waiver authority do? So this is where, when we were preparing our, our materials yesterday initially, we thought we would be making our distinctions between the current waivers and what was created under the waiver authority, which was the CARES Act um, signed last Friday. It actually, when we read it, it, it looked like it was really going to be able to give the secretary that very expansive authority to really um, waive a lot of those requirements that existed within the Social Security Act, very defined section around telehealth services. So when we were looking at that initially, the question we had was, well, we have the waiver authority. When do we expect to get those expanded waivers? Because if you recall from the first set of emergency spending legislation it took, um, several days to actually get to that official waiver from the secretary to implement some of those, those telehealth provisions. But we didn't have to wait for very long because as of around 5.30 Eastern time last night, CMS issued an interim final rule, which was really implementing um, a lot of changes under this recently established uh, increased waiver authority. We provide the link to the CMS fact sheet um, regarding these services in our, in our slide. This is very significant for purposes of telehealth coverage under Medicare because now it has expanded that defined list of services that Medicare will pay for as a telehealth service. And when I say telehealth service, that means that those are the services that are still required to be provided real-time, face-to-face, audio and visual. That is a telehealth um, coverage, a telehealth service. And that criteria hasn't changed. There's, there's a lot of uh, commentary and discussion in the rule around other types of services, but for purposes of Medicare coverage and payment, the list of telehealth services that can be paid for has been expanded to include ED visits, initial nursing facility, discharge, home visits, things that really before Medicare had determined were not appropriate to not be provided face-to-face. Uh, -face. Because of the risk to the beneficiaries and the risk to the provider community of the virus, they are um, increasing a lot of this flexibility to provide these services remotely to protect both the beneficiaries and the healthcare providers. Very importantly, the, the services must still be provided by a clinician that is allowed to provide telehealth services under the statute. That is still an important distinction. And a lot of these services now can be provided to both new and established patients. One of the important uh, components listed on the fact sheet, and then if you go through the rule, is that there is a, a bullet point in the fact sheet that providers can evaluate beneficiaries who have audio-only phones. This is an important distinction. What has not occurred is the waiver of that, that two-way vi video visual um, communication for a telehealth service. What CMS has done is actually taken the, the existing CPT codes within the manual for telephone-only services that Medicare has always considered to be non-covered. They are now covering those. So this gives increased flexibility for practitioners and providers to be able to have 
essentially an E&M telephone call visit recognized by those existing CPT codes for telephone call only, audio only, so we don't have to be concerned about beneficiaries who don't have access to two-way communication or access to a smartphone. Those are now going to be covered CPT codes. And again, making the distinction, those are not telehealth codes. Those not fall under the statutory provisions for telehealth. This is just taking those defined set of telephone-only um, CPT codes, which some payers have already um, been paying for, and Medicare is now going to, to pay those as covered. Um, further, for telehealth under the, the expanded um, provisions under the interim final rule, telehealth, and again, when we say that two-way video, um, audio video communication, it can be used to fulfill many of the face-to-face -face visit requirements that clinicians were um, subject to prior, including inpatient rehabs, hospice, home health, that there were several types of services that way that could only be provided um, in person that now under the public health emergency during this time period can be provided via telehealth. Um, and again, some more, more uh, just some highlights from, from the interim final rule regarding um, home health agencies can provide more services to beneficiaries using telehealth that has to be included in the plan of care, um, more flexibility for hospice providers getting those routine services. Um, importantly, if a physician determines that a beneficiary should not leave their home due to a medical, um, medical condition or of a suspected COVID-19, and that beneficiary needs skilled services, that will qualify the, the beneficiary for services under the Medicare Home Health Benefit. Um, another important change under the interim final rule is that for purposes of uh, physician incident to services that require direct supervision, that direct supervision can now be met through a virtual presence, meaning that two-way audio-visual vis communication it does not have to be provided in person in the office suite. That also extends to services provided in a hospital outpatient department. Medicare is uh, revising the definition of direct supervision that lives within the regulation relating to diagnostic services, and that also feeds over into hospital services. That anything requiring that direct um, supervision during this emergency period you're permitted to provide that direct supervision through a virtual presence. I've included this slide from the original March 17, 2020 fact sheet um, that talked about telehealth visits versus virtual check-ins and e-visits because I think it's still a good way to distinguish that the Medicare telehealth visits, and again, this slide is outdated, but you can see from the bucket that it's really those services that could be provided under the Social Security Act provision that pays for telehealth services, which is distinct from virtual check-in services, which are not telehealth. Those are paid under the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Those were not subject to, tele to the telehealth statutory uh, limitations. And the same, same thing for e-visits. And you can see on this slide that the virtual check-ins and the e-visits, which, which have existed prior to any of the telehealth waiver authority, were only allowed to be used for, for established patients. We have now seen that expanded under the, under the interim final rule. So I like to use that slide as a way to just draw the distinction between what virtual check-ins are and e-visits as distinct from the telehealth services. Those have their own defined set of CPT codes that can be used um, by, by different types of practitioners. And I will mention that the, the final rule has a lot of information at the code level, very specific to the CPT codes that can be used, very specific to the code descriptions. CMS has provided some very good information via fact sheet on their new waiver and flexibilities page of their website, which, which is a helpful resource. Um, virtual check-ins and e-visits can now be provided to both new and established patients. Prior to the interim final rule, those services could only be provided to established patients. And importantly, the consent, because those services require verbal consent, those can be documented by auxiliary staff. 
And if we go back to that slide, you can see that the virtual check-ins were those brief check-ins over the phone or some other type of electronic device, whereas an e-visit was communication through an online patient portal. Um, so for purposes of what's been expanded, continuing, um, clinicians can now provide some remote patient monitoring services for patients with COVID-19 or any other chronic conditions. And there's an example there that CMS gives related to you know, monitoring a, a patient's oxygen level. So this is important and another big change. Providers can now bill for telehealth visits, and again, telehealth, the two-way communication, at the same rate as in-person visits. Prior to this expansion under the final rule, um, telehealth services had to be billed with a place of service code 02 on the CMS 1500. That is how it, you identify that with a telehealth service to Medicare. Medicare paid for those services at the facility payment rate under the Medicare physician fee schedule, which means there, there isn't any practice expense included in that. That made sense under the original um, telehealth coverage under the statute because only patients who were present at an originating site could receive services that would be billable by the distant site practitioner the originating site could, could bill for that originating site facility fee. Medicare has since recognized that most of these services that are able to be provided now is likely to occur from a patient in their home, so they've updated the, the billing guidance for the distance site practitioners such that they can bill for their services from where they would normally be seeing their patient, meaning if a physician is in their office where they're going to bill it with an office place of service code, they're going to include now a 95 modifier to identify to the telehealth service but then that physician or practitioner will be paid at the non-facility full office payment rate uh, for those services. Place of service 02 will continue to be paid at the facility payment rate. The rule suggested that for practitioners who don't want to change the way they do it, they can continue to, to use the 02. But if you're, if you're a physician in, the, in, your, in their office um, or even their home, if you're billing now with an appropriate office place of service, then you'll be paid um, at the office visit non-facility payment rate. Um, our assumption at this point is that if you're a physician providing services in their home as a distance site practitioner, that it would be billed with an office place of service because your, your billing would still be going through your, your reassigned physician or group practice. This is a little off topic, but there's some provider enrollment um, guidance out there as well regarding um, physicians who can provide services in their home during this time period. So our assumption is that those would be billed with an office place of service if that, if that guidance changed or we get clarification, we, we can update that. Um, again, from the prior guidance, we assume no other emergency waiver modifiers are required. There are modifiers required by the Medicare program for services provided via an 1135 waiver, but Medicare had already said that those, those modifiers would not apply to, to telehealth services. Um, I did not see um, any apparent changes to the originating site requirements within the interim final rule, so it's safe to assume that you can only still bill that originating site facility fee if you're one of those qualified um, originating sites that exist within the statute. I have them listed on the slide. And then again, the originating site is where the patient is located. So there's been no changes to, to that portion of the coverage. If the patient is in a skilled nursing facility or in a hospital or in an RHC, and they are there receiving telehealth services from a distant site, then that originating site fee can still be billed um, by, that, by that originating site entity. Um, method 2 critical access hospitals can bill for professional telehealth services on the UB with their required modifier. And again, we don't see any indication that the DR condition code uh, would be required. Um, what else has changed from the interim final rule? I think this is important because there's some discussion in there that can be a little confusing because of the services that they expanded. Uh, the distance site practitioners must still be qualified providers under the original coverage rules. 
Those qualified providers include, as listed on the slide, physicians, certain non-physician practitioners, such as nurse practitioners and physician assistants, and certain other practitioners operate within their scope of practice, such as certified nurse anesthetists, licensed clinical social workers, dietitians, et cetera. Those are still the only practitioners who can provide telehealth services uh, under Medicare because they have not made a change to that qualified provider uh, requirement under, under, the, under the statutory provision. So this is an important distinction. Medicare has been adding codes that they would cover as telehealth, including therapy codes, meaning um, therapy, outpatient therapy codes, outpatient rehab, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology. But importantly, and, the, and the, this is discussed in the rule, why Medicare went ahead and made the decision to add those codes to the list of telehealth services codes that can be provided, again, meaning the audiovisual uh, two-way communication. They have not added PT, uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, or speech-language pathologists to the types of practitioners who can provide those telehealth services. And they made that clear in the rule uh, that they didn't add these codes back in 2008 when they were asked to because they were afraid it would cause confusion since these codes are, are predominantly billed by um, therapists who are not qualified practitioners under, for telehealth services. Those codes now exist as qualified as telehealth services that can be billed and paid for as telehealth but not if they're provided by PTs, OTs, or speech-language pathologists. Those uh, group of practitioners, however, can provide and bill for the telephone call, E&M CPT codes, um, and also there's some um, opportunity there for those types of practitioners under, under e-visits. Um, really quickly before we, I move on to Mike, um, and again, we focus this, this part of the presentation on Medicaid with all of the changes, or I'm sorry, Medicare with all of the changes. Look, you look at Medicaid, Medicaid is going to be state-specific. The, the blanket waivers that CMS has issued under 1135 and under the interim final rule, those waivers apply to Medicare requirements and payments. So it's very important that you need to look at each state to determine what they have requested or approved um, via Medicaid waiver. Has there been other guidance issued by the state Medicaid programs? We looked at several states that are issuing guidance related to telemedicine and telehealth services and they vary from state to state. So it's important that you look at your particular state's um, authority or guidance that they're, they're giving um, related to these types of services. Commercial payers, varied and rapidly evolving. And again, commercial payers have always had more, more flexibility than Medicare in, in providing more additional coverage health services, but they generally appear to be following the lead of CMS, um, albeit at a different pace. So it's very important to, to check also your commercial payer contracts and guidance to see what they are allowing for under this emergency period. We know some are allowing audio only, some already had, and calling those telehealth services versus just those, those telephone calls. Um, and with that, I will move um, on to Mike. Thank you, Reagan. So um, we've talked about licensing and credentialing and, and reimbursement, and, and now we're going to talk a little bit about the technology. So as was mentioned at the front end, in each one of our disciplines, we know that we talk, use these terms differently. So in the IT space, generally telemedicine is the term we use for that face-to-face -face component. Um, and telehealth is everything that doesn't require that face-to-face -face component. So if you're coming into this conversation from the IT world, know that in the IT world, telemedicine translates in the reimbursement world to telehealth. Uh, moving into to the technology, right? So as we try to replace that face-to-face -face video component with technology, there's really three big buckets of the technology uh, that fill that gap, kind of from the Cadillac to the Econoline here. So 
the, the first bucket is really that fully integrated patient portal. Here we're, we're looking at our Epic or our Cerner system and the patient navigates to the patient portal, clicks the link, and, and obtains access to the provider. It's a really rich environment here for the healthcare provider, for the, uh, for the patient. There's a lot of continuity as you move between the, the, the physical office visit and into the virtual care. Stepping out of that patient portal version, we kind of step into kind of the mid-level. And here, that video component tends to be provided by a, a third-party standalone solution. So this augments the healthcare provider's EHR, but it's, it's a wholly separate system. Uh, you may do some, some patient encounter uh, functions by, by passing uh, your consents through your notice of privacy practices. There may be some, some workflow there. You may connect, uh, collect a, a patient medical history, but, but you, you're still documenting your patient encounter in your EHR. And finally, the, the, the Econoline version is, is what has just been opened up by, by OCR, is the ability to use FaceTime or, or Skype for Business or Google Hangouts to fill just that video link. And as we go through these uh, next few slides, we're going to be talking about how, how, depending on what kind of solution you have, that kind of indicates how you can make use of some of the waivers that are out there and where some of the confusion lies on those waivers. As Chris and Reagan mentioned, um, last night we uh, received some additional waivers, and the one that really caught my attention was the adjustments to Stark. There were a whole slew of opportunities to it to rent equipment at off-market value and whatnot. But the one that really jumped out to me for the telemedicine solutions was the non-monetary remuneration waiver. This allows for an entity um, to provide to a physician in the form of non-monetary compensation something that exceeds the, the, the statutory limits. And then they went on to provide the example of an entity that's providing free telehealth equipment to the physicians. So for those health systems that are trying to push telemedicine solutions onto their, their uh, non-employed med staff, this, this waiver is going to function very similar to what you may have already been familiar with under the EHR donation rigs um, without the, the, uh, the cost share component. So you can extend with this waiver during the emergency uh, some, some telehealth equipment. The other uh, piece that came out late yesterday was the FCC's COVID-19 telehealth program. And this program sets aside $200 million uh, to help healthcare providers acquire and deploy um, eligible telehealth service equipment. Um, this program is likely going to function a lot like the FCC's Universal Service Fund program, uh, although the FCC has indicated that this will, will be uh, a quick in motion where the, the USF program is, it takes about a year to cycle through. So not a lot of details from the FCC initially on this. Uh, we expect those here in the coming days, uh, but, but be aware that if, if funding for telehealth uh, equipment is a challenge, the FCC's program uh, is, is just going to get the legs under it. So with those three kind of uh, levels of telehealth equipment, We've got a whole slew of documents that are going to govern how you use that equipment, what your obligations are to the vendor of that equipment or that service, um, and how that impacts the, the privacy of the data that, that's flowing over it. So as you think about the licensing a piece of, 
telehealth equipment, whether it's uh, a, a cart or if you're just buying a software service um, like American Well or, or one of those video tools like Zoom, you're going to have a provider to vendor license agreement. And that, that agreement's going to, if you have an uh, interface with your EHR, it's going to define that. And they're likely going to be functioning as a business associate when you have that written agreement with the vendor. In addition, you're going to have, so that's the provider end of that communication tool. At the other patient end, you're going to have the patient end user license terms or terms of use. And then on each side of that communication, you're going to have privacy policies. So the vendor will have a privacy policy, and the provider likely on their website will have a privacy policy. And the provider will also have a notice of privacy practices. The reason that I list all four of these documents is each one of those classes of documents is going to define the privacy rights and how, how the vendor can use that data either as a business associate when they're functioning as an agent of the provider or if it's coming from the patient side as a licensor of technology, they may also have rights to the patient data as the patient pushes that data into that platform. And that becomes particularly acute when you're looking at scenarios where the vendor of the IT solution is also functioning in patient to provider matching. So there are technologies out there as you look at telehealth solutions that allow a patient to log in and enter, I want to see this kind of provider, I'm in this kind of insurance, and I'm in this geographic location. And that, that IT platform will do that kind of Uber matching to help you find a, an available provider. In many of those cases, the data that's being pushed in there by the patient is viewed by the, the platform vendor as the platform vendor's data, not health information. Um, so as you start to put together an understanding of how that data moves across the platform and who owns it and what your obligations are in HIPAA, it's important to understand how each one of those four documents is going to impact that. So with that as background, looking at what's happening now within our emergency, right? So here we have the OCR that has issued its waiver that says healthcare providers will not be subject to penalties for violating of HIPAA privacy or security rules, breach notification rules that occur during a good faith provision of telehealth during the COVID-19 national public health emergency. What is really key in that phrase is it is a exercise of enforcement discretion during the telehealth visit. Some have read this and think that it's a free pass for all things HIPAA and is not. It's, it's the very limited elements of the telehealth visit. So if going back to those three types of platforms, the Cadillac, the mid-level, and the, the Econo line, right? If you're in the mid-level space where you are pushing patient data into the platform, it is really important that you understand that once that telehealth visit ends, that platform will continue to hold your patient data. It's essential in those cases to maintain a business associate relationship with the vendor because you will not have protection under the OCR exercise of discretion, likely. Um, so that, that OCR's enforcement discretion really is going to apply just to that 
simple video link when you're using FaceTime or one of those tools. Um, there's been a whole slew of additional HIPAA guidance, and that's uh, located at the, our, our link there that will walk you through the other pieces, but uh, it's not all relevant on the uh, telemedicine front. In addition to HIPAA, we need to pay attention to Part 2, right? Part 2, we have two pieces of guidance here. The first, SAMHSA came out and said that it's up to the provider to determine in each case whether the medical emergency exists, and if so, if the medical emergency exists, then that, that information can be provided uh, to another healthcare provider, and the existence of that medical emergency should be documented in the record. Um, trying to simplify the challenges of Part 2 compliance, the CARES Act uh, directs HHS and SAMHSA to align services across um, the, uh, the two organizations and do so in the next 180 days. Now that we've talked about HIPAA and SAMHSA, much like the uh, in Chris's presentation, we have to make, give some considerations to state law. Although HIPAA came out and indicated that we would not have uh, or we would have enforcement discretions, the HIPAA preemption of state laws creates some confusion because as the, as the floor is dropped by the federal government, it leaves space for, for the state to for the state's attorney general to exercise their enforcement authority. So as you look at launching your telemedicine solution, do give some consideration to your particular state's um, state law privacy as well as medical privacy laws. Also, the recent announcements, um, and some of you may be aware, the TCPA or Telephone Consumer Protection Act uh, is a, a law that stands out there and, and bars use of automatic uh, telephone dialing systems and pre-recorded voice messages. Um, the FCC came out and said, look, during this state of emergency, hospitals and government officials, um, if the content of the call is solely informational and related to the COVID-19 uh, outbreak, uh, be a little more secure that you are, you're comfortable within the penalties of the TCPA and will not enforce uh, against you. So, so there were a series of changes there, right? And in telemedicine, we're trying to stand it up quickly. So it's important to understand the limits of, of the waivers as well as the funding mechanisms and how it works. But with everything that has changed, a lot is still the same, right? A telemedicine visit still requires synchronous audio and video. As Reagan noted, there are things that fall outside of telehealth that require only audio. But telemedicine visits still require audio and video as they stand today. The provider must also maintain a record of the encounter. The provider must obtain informed consent from the patient through one means or another. The provider must advise the patient of their financial responsibility. And the provider must make the notice of privacy practices available to the patient. In addition, we have the various state laws that may also creep in there. So how do we, how do we accomplish that? So, the easiest route in the virtual encounter is to start with the scheduling process. So as you look at standing up your telemedicine encounter, consider what kind of information you have provided through the scheduling process. Are we taking patients 
as they need an encounter, or is this scheduled in advance? If it's scheduled in advance, what documentation can we forward to them uh, for the, to support the consent for treatment and to support the compliance with HIPAA? In addition, in that time, if you are using particularly one of the non-secured applications, so FaceTime, Google Hangouts, and whatnot, during that scheduling process or at the initiation of the visit, it's really important that you talk with the patient and explain to them that they are using a non-secure uh, solution for communication. They understand what that means, and they assume the risk of the use of that insecure platform. We think if you do that and it's documented in the record, it puts you in a much better place and the patient's made an informed decision. So once that visit is initiated, the provider can, can memorialize in, in the medical record that they've received informed consent, that they've, um, they've received the notice of privacy practices, as well as any supplement related to the particular platform. And then as you finish out that telemedicine visit, uh, you can take care of any um, continuing care documentation and routing of that. And with that, I'm going to pass the mic back to Chris, who's going to walk through how we do our game plans. Great. Thanks, Mike. Um, so before I wrap this up, and we'll move through these next few slides, kind of coming full circle, um, uh, just take us a few minutes to do so, um, and then we'll, we'll stay on to answer a few questions. Um, but because we're clearly not going to have time to answer all the questions we're seeing, um, I do want to clarify two points. One. Um, we are we're, we're doing our best to uh, make um, quick uh, updates and alerts um, uh, with respect to telemedicine and telehealth, um, and also as relates to all other aspects of, of what we're seeing during this period. All of this information is on our COVID-19 resource page. Um, so we will take the questions we get. Um, we will make those part of the alerts and what we publish, uh, and you can find that at hallrender.com slash coronavirus. Uh, in addition to that, um, like I said, we'll, we'll answer a few questions, and, and, and certainly you're welcome to follow up us, with us directly um, as needed. Okay, so in terms of having a game plan, um, given we have these various buckets, we have reimbursement considerations, uh, professional practice considerations, IT-specific components, there's really, uh, it's, it's important to ask uh, a series of questions, and we think in a particular order to get from point A to point B. Um, and, and so step one really is where do we want, uh, where do we want to use telemedicine? Um, the jurisdiction is going to matter. We've covered that. What states will we be in? 50 states uh, or two states? We need to recognize that. Where will the patient uh, uh, be located uh, in, uh, amongst those states? So where will our distant providers be, distant site providers? Well, where will the patients be? That's going to implicate what laws we need to pay attention to. Um, why do we want to use telemedicine? Three, three weeks ago, um, whether or not we could get paid for telemedicine may have driven that decision uh, almost entirely. That's not the case anymore. Uh, we, we, there is value in, in isolating patients, practitioners, easing the burden um, um, on hospitals and EDs and offices. What are our priorities? Because we may find, even though the answer over the last few weeks and, and, and as of yesterday is increasingly yes, there will be reimbursement, there may not be reimbursement. We may want to do telemedicine anyway. So know your priorities uh, from the start. That's also going to dictate what we're looking at um, and, and the value of what we're finding. 
what specific services do we want to provide? You know, we're talking about telemedicine generally, but you can, especially now, provide a whole host of different types of services in different settings. The dialogue you have with patients, your workflow, uh, your reimbursement considerations are all going to be driven by those particular services. Um, does state law permit these services? Are there specialty-specific requirements? Will these services involve prescriptions of controlled substances, of non-controlled substances? We, we need to nail that down. Uh, four, who's going to be providing these services? Physicians, APRNs, psychologists, PTs? And as you've just heard, um, maybe a PT can practice therapy per the professional practice standards, but is not going to actually get reimbursement through Medicare. Um, so who is providing the service certainly matters and factors into the equation. And then is reimbursement available, right? Um, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, as, as Reagan addressed. Uh, how are we going to provide these services? Uh, Mike addressed technology. What technology will we use? Um, must they include, will they include live audio video? That relates back to the prescriptions uh, and, and other factors. Uh, and then what's our workflow? Um, just to wrap this up, you know, Mike, Mike talked about uh, this just a bit. How are we going to schedule these visits? What, what, what sort of information can we share at that time realistically? What consent can we get or consent issues can we vet? Um, how are we going to deal with patient identification and consent issues, um, our medical record keeping process? It's really important to map this workflow out before you, you get started. Even if it's a quick one, even if we're ramping up immediately, um, let's map out how we're going to do it today and tomorrow, and then let's put our game plan uh, together for next week and how we're going to do this maybe on a more permanent basis. So with that, um, I'm going to um, get to uh, a few questions, um, and then as I said, uh, we will post additional information uh, on our resource page uh, and certainly welcome you to follow up. Uh, so one of the questions I see is, does the DEA audiovisual uh, requirement um, uh, is this relevant to established patients or just new patients? Uh, and the answer is, is all of the above. Um, the rule and the exception relate specifically to new patients in the way of allowing you to prescribe controlled substances uh, through telemedicine uh, to new patients. But the expectation is, even under the current rule, that uh, you would have the ability to do so uh, if you, you, you've already seen and, and have an established relationship with the patient. Again, the caveat being you need to pay attention to applicable state law uh, because those requirements uh, may be much more uh, restrictive. Um, I see a question uh, regarding um, kind of the, the uh, length of time these, uh, these, uh, uh, all of these exceptions and waivers will remain in place. Uh, almost universally, um, they will remain in place pending uh, uh, the end of the declared state of, 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 of emergency. So when the declared at the federal level, when the, 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 the emergency period ends, uh, almost all of these waivers uh, and exceptions we've talked about will end at that time. Um, certain statements regarding uh, uh, discretionary non-exercise of certain other provisions uh, are in place until further notice, but the expectation there is uh, once the period of emergency ends, uh, so too will, will those exceptions. And so, you know, it's on the one hand ramping up and addressing uh, uh, telemedicine a way quickly that, that accomplishes what we need in the short term, 
uh, but in the back of our, of our minds, particularly if we're going to, uh, you know, continue with telemedicine, we have to anticipate that, that much of this will, will revert back. Mike, do you have um, any questions or before we adjourn, or Regan? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was just I was just sent a question. So the question relates to um, HOPDs. So the question is, if a provider is at the HOPD and the patient is at home, the provider bills place of service O2 and hospital submits what? So this would be the situation where if the provider is located in the outpatient department and the patient is at home, the patient is at home. That's not a qualified originating site. So the only thing that would be billed would be by that distance site provider. They're sitting in a physical hospital outpatient department, so the place of service code would reflect either 19 or 22. It would not reflect the O2 under their revised guidance. Um, again, that goes on. Also, if the patient is at HOPD and the physician is at home, then if the patient is at the HOPD, that is a qualified originating site. The hospital would bill on the UB, the originating site fee, the, the Q3014, and then the physician would bill on the 1500 as the distance site practitioner. Um, they could continue to still use the O2 as a telehealth service code that's, that's allowed, or the physician more likely would bill with the office place of service to, to identify that. Um, oh, I'm sorry, it would bill with the, it would be the O2 because the patient would be at the HOPD and there would be an originating site fee billed by, billed by the hospital. Hey, Chris, I had a, a question uh, from someone that was looking to understand how to find all the agreements that relate to use of a vendor. Um, and it is really important. It's a great question. Quite often, you'll, with a lot of the new upstarts, you'll find uh, that the vendor gives you a PO with a hyperlink with terms. It is really important to kind of go through that hyperlink as well as look at um, their privacy policy and their terms of use. Generally, in their privacy policy, uh, you'll see some indication that they want to do marketing uh, based on the data that they collect, and that's always a red flag for healthcare providers. Great. Thanks, Mike. Um, well, great. We, uh, it looks like we're, we're over 10 minutes uh, past. Um, we do want to be respectful of everyone's time. So we'll, we'll end the webinar at this point. Uh, again, we'll, we'll do our best to address many of these topics and some of these other questions in the alerts that we post. Uh, we appreciate you uh, attending and uh, have a nice day. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you would like to learn more about any of the topics you heard in today's episode, please visit our website at hallrender.com. Please remember that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice.